I think, especially at early stage, your investors are going to be with you a long time, hopefully, if you're successful. So most important thing is that you find an investor that you feel aligned with culturally and in terms of the strategy for the business. So I think finding the right investor is just really important. And you've got to be aware about where they are in their investment cycle, what their expectations are and what they're looking for in terms of return. I'm Guy Gillen, one of the co-founders and managing partners at Tenzing. We're a private equity firm and we're passionate about human stories in business. In this series, I'm getting under the skin of some of the UK and the tech world's most interesting founders, entrepreneurs and CEOs. Welcome to The Ascent. Today, I'm very pleased to be able to share with you my recent conversation with Caroline Plum. Caroline is a truly inspirational serial entrepreneur and CEO. In 2000, straight out of university, she started Fresh Minds, which matched some of the planet's fastest growing businesses with top young talent and thought leadership. Fresh Minds is now a professional services firm, has worked with over 4,000 clients to answer key strategic challenges and helped over 100,000 people into new roles. Caroline managed to hand over the day-to-day leadership at Fresh Minds to give space to explore new opportunities. This culminated in founding Fluidly, a venture-backed fintech company that uses AI to help tens of thousands of small businesses manage their cash flow and was recently named in Wired's top 100 hottest European startups and the Fintech 50. Add to that a stint as one of the Prime Minister's business ambassadors, public company non-exec roles and an OBE. It was such a privilege to talk to Caroline. I'm sure you'll enjoy the episode. Caroline, tell me about your earliest entrepreneurial experiences growing up. I'm not sure I was particularly entrepreneurial growing up. I wasn't one of those children that was constantly selling sweets um, to put the tuck shop out of business or (laughs) importing toys. I was more the sort of child that liked taking things apart. So I was into exploring how things worked, how devices worked. (laughs) Whenever things were broken, my dad would let me have it. You know, whether it was a microwave or a TV, Hoover, whatever it was, it was basically mine. I could disassemble it. So I think that was always an interest in technology, in computing, engineering, but mainly just destroying things, I think, and seeing what was inside. What do you think's driven you? I just like things getting better. I think it is that sense of I want things to be as good as they can be. I don't actually mind if they have a limitation in themselves about where they got to be. But if you're going to do something, then do it properly. Yeah. And so part of it is just like wanting to fix things that are annoying in the world. We brought up like that, do you think? I mean, my background is quite unusual in some ways in that I'm half Mongolian, half British, but British passport, but half Mongolian ethnically. And so my grandfather and grandmother, but grandfather in particular, you know, was born on the steps of Mongolia in a yurt, didn't go to school till he was 12 or 13. And I'm very mindful of the fact that I am here today through a kind of twist of fate, really, in that he got captured by bandits. And when he was returned after three months back to his family, they decided that of their nine children, they would put this one to school because he'd been through so much. And as a result, he was the first person to go to school sent miles away and from school ended up going to university and from university ended up going to America and then from America to the UK. And, you know, that is completely happenstance. Otherwise, I'd probably be on a step as well <laughs> uh, in the year. And I guess I'm mindful that the opportunity when it comes, people have to take, but that opportunity doesn't come to everybody. So not being judgmental about people, I think, is really important and looking for what people can add to a conversation. You know, different perspectives are really 
valuable and we are so much as humans creatures of habit and we get so much into routines that the way we kind of connect the dots is so much a function of our cultural experience and our own routine and so some of the times you can't even break out of your own perspective because you're just so focused into it from your own experience so how do you use other people to kind of see things differently and get different perspectives and then bring them together and did that translate into university life what did you study i actually started off reading engineering and computer science and i was sponsored by gchq so i worked as a software engineer for them in the summers spy Uh, (laughs) actually what it mainly taught me was that i liked coding and i found it interesting but i didn't want to do it all day and all night and as many of my contemporaries would do that in the day and then go home and then reprogram the lights and i wanted to do something else so actually i ended up switching from computer science aspect to engineering economics and management which was seemed a bit broader and was a bit more interesting from a kind of business perspective but retained that kind of how things work part because you went straight from university didn't you to found a business yeah that was pretty much it we left in the summer and by about a month later we'd incorporated this company and were trading we sort of intended to have the summer off actually but we ended up helping out another startup my friend charlie and i and then we started the business launched it in september so never actually had a proper job despite having spent most of the sort of final year trekking up and down to London to interview with all these strategy consultants and actually getting a whole bunch of jobs from fancy places like McKinsey and Boston Consulting Group. So it was quite a big decision, I suppose, at the time to turn those roles down and to decide instead that rather than taking this pretty high paid for a graduate job that it would be better to live off that student debt a bit longer and see if we could make our own way. Do you remember the conversation or the catalyst that went actually should we do our own thing and bin this off (laughs) and don't tell our parents? It's actually my mum who was probably one of the most supportive people around this period. I think if she had reacted with horror in terms of hang on you've just spent four years at university getting this degree and you're now turning down a job. What are you doing? I think I probably would never have done that. But she was incredibly supportive and said, well, you know, why not give it a go if that's what you want to do? It was dot-com time. So it was sort of 99, 2000. Everyone was talking about starting a business. You had people like Brent Hoberman, Martha Lane Fox in the news. The crash hadn't happened at that time. So it followed this promise that anyone could start a business. And we thought, maybe we'll have a go at that. And we came up with all these business ideas. In fact, we'd started this network to run events to help students start businesses in our final year. Our first event, over 800 people showed up. Wow. So we'd started doing these sort of events and then we thought we'd start some business ideas. And we started coming up with all sorts of things. The Times were running one of those Eat for a Fiver deals at the time. So we'd take our student £5 and go and eat in some fancy restaurant that we'd not normally be able to go to and sit and talk about you know, business ideas over our fiver we came up with all kinds of things a gifting business then there was one about launching young designers and in the end we decided to run the launching young designers idea and what became fresh minds in parallel for a few months and that was the basis that we turned down these consulting jobs i probably wouldn't have done it at the time if i hadn't met charlie he was always thinking about starting a business so it became something we started talking about much more And he sort of sought me out, you know, in that he had sort of been looking for a business partner and was very persuasive and said, why don't we try something? And so that was part of it, certainly. And then the other part was, it's a good time to start a business. You just left university, you're kind of in debt anyway. Once you've got a few thousand pounds worth of debt, does more matter? (laughs) Um, You know, responsibilities, no income. The downside position can't get a lot worse, which is just going to incur more student debt. And so the upside is interesting. And I think... 
starting a business, it's creative, it's lots of fun. I think the hardest part actually was, I don't know if it's imposter syndrome or kind of self-doubt or that feeling that you're meant to do a certain track in life. Yeah. You know, as you say, traditional school, traditional university, there's kind of jobs that you're kind of meant to go into, whether that's law or accounting or do a PhD or consulting or banking or yeah. the sort of well-trodden paths that's sort of the expectation. And actually it was almost deviating from that norm expectation that was the hardest and it wasn't probably till two three five years later when actually it became okay <laughs> to sort of say oh we started a business yeah um, because of course shortly after by the time we'd made the decision that we were going to turn down these jobs and start a business the crash had happened as well so yeah no one was interested anymore in these dot-com businesses so what were the two businesses you started and did you always have two or did you drop one then no we dropped one pretty quickly so the first idea was this launching young designers we were going to try and build an umbrella brand and find young designers who perhaps didn't have a brand but wanted to launch their own designs under a broader umbrella brand and then we would launch that and we spent a lot of time going to interview designers talking to fashion colleges talking to designers at central st martin's like lots of different places to see whether we could build something but then we quickly realized that was going to take a lot more time and more importantly more money than we had access to so that idea was quickly binned in favour of our second idea, which was harnessing the brain power of the people we knew around us and connecting that resource to business in a more flexible way. And that's what became Fresh Minds. So were you like, there was a business plan when you started Fresh Minds or was it more hustle? No, there was no business plan. Interesting. I mean, we were still 2021, 20, straight out of university. The main plan initially was to try to see if anyone would buy what we were trying to sell and so we used to have this stick which was to write people asking for advice you know hi there we're just thinking about starting a business have you got 10 minutes to give us some advice on our business idea and various people would say yes and then we'd ask them what do you think about our idea do you like it and then eventually we'd say would you buy and so we um, we would sort of ask people under the guise of advice a little bit we didn't really have much in the way of networks so I think people always say, you know, what's the hardest part about starting a business when you're young? And it's because you don't know anything. But actually, the challenge is you don't know anyone. And so we, from the outset, spent quite a lot of time just trying to meet other people, whether that was, you know, through our interviews that we'd done, we went back to all those consulting firms and all those corporates. And actually, they became some of our earliest clients. So from early on, we ended up with, you know, McKinsey as a client, with Boston Consulting Group, with Unilever. Oh, wow. And so we would have small projects, but small pieces of work, just because those were the people we'd met through the process. I did an internship at Forrester Research. They'd become a client. Charlie done an internship at Unilever, which is how we got them. And so we just went from the beginnings of the networks that we had. And then once you've got kind of one foothold, then you can kind of jump to a second. And that's essentially what Fresh Minds was, was this really powerful network system that you managed to monetize. Yeah, essentially. I mean, we created a almost a database of raw talent, you know, smart people leaving universities, young at the time, graduates, so they would do much more senior roles now, and found a way of connecting them to business in a way that made sense for the business to tap into that talent on a permanent or interim basis and to provide a route to that talent and different types of roles for the graduates and people leaving university. As you get older, you realise it's about networks as much as, in fact, almost more about networks than actually what you know. As you say, when you're 21, you don't generally know many people. So you kind of accelerate your development just by trying to get the business off the ground. It sort of forces you into networking 
a much earlier stage there must be huge benefits that have come off that yeah absolutely and I think there's I was quite skeptical I wasn't one of those people that really liked the concept of networking it feels a bit transactional or slightly dirty or shady about it I don't think that's really the case at all but the focus I think is on how do you pay it forward into your network what can you understand about people that might be helpful to them and I think it's one of those things that if you keep paying into a network eventually it returns to you maybe not from the same point or the same node but it's certainly of value and we spent a lot more time probably early on in careers than most people we had to of building networks and probably that's been incredibly useful but one of my favorite quotes is a um, management theorist peter dracker he talks about the leader of the past knows how to tell and the leader of the future knows how to ask and I think the great thing about starting a business when you don't know anything and when you're young is that you really don't have the answers to anything. So what you get good at is asking questions and asking other people's perspectives. And even now, when I've recently tried to get a view of what's going to happen in the small business lending market over the next two years, because my business is very interested in that at the moment. And so my first thing that I will do is pick up the phone to five or six people that I know who've been in the industry longer than me, you've seen more cycles, who are well connected, are going to have different perspectives and say, look, have you got time for a half hour, hour chat on how you see the market? And, you know, my view would then come be sort of an amalgamation of what I hear over multiple conversations. So it's never a sort of attempt to impose a view or get something in the first instance, but I will be interested in exchanging ideas often with people. And they're getting something from you, clearly, because you're naturally open and sharing so it's like a two-way conversation yeah I would hope that I'd always share the perspectives that I've found in that conversation so we both get something of value from it but it's sort of nobody waves but everybody waves back you know someone has to initiate and I think that by doing that and being that person that actually sets up conversations asks questions actually everybody gains from that but not everybody does it in the first place and so Betsy Charlie is your co-founder Charlie seeked you out. <laughs> yeah. Talk me through the co-founder relationship. I'm really interested in that and how you gelled well and your specific roles. I think actually reading engineering both of us was really helpful in many respects because I do think that engineers tend to be quite logical and quite structured in an approach to a problem. So I think there's something that kind of worked in the dynamic that we're just both interested in getting to a good solution. Always very happy to have a very robust conversation around whether something we should do A or B. And I think we'd always just take the opposing view just to play devil's advocate, even if we agreed in the first place, just because I think you get to a better place. Another quote is um, William Wrigley, theme of the chewing gum fame, says that if two people always agree, one of them is unnecessary. And I really think that's a good way of going about problems, you know, trying to see, well, what's the pros and cons, take the opposite position, debate it out, even if you actually fundamentally end up in the same place, which largely did. So we had a, you know, just a very good relationship of bouncing ideas around and not really caring where they started from or who owned them. But, you know, how do you evolve them? Where do you get to on that? And that worked really well. It was always a very open conversation set and very easy. And how about balancing like personal ambitions? Because Obviously, when you're 21, you go, oh, we're going to take over the world. <laughs> but as you go up, you get partners, family, other distractions, and you develop as human. So how long were you and Charlie almost as one? And when did you ever start thinking differently? Or did that never really happen? Probably about 10 years or so we were business partners for. And then he made a decision in the first time to leave the business and do something different. And... I, at the time, was on maternity leave, so it wasn't really great timing for me to do something different at the time. <laughs> but actually, I left the business in later years. 
But we've always both been exec in the business and non-exec in the businesses at the same time and at different times. And now actually we're both involved in completely different businesses. But actually when he started his new business, he gave me a small shareholding. And when I started my current business, fluidly, I did the same for him. So it's sort of more of a... Um, Intertwined. Yeah, but in a kind of just recognising the thing that we'd built in the first place and friendship, but nothing more than that in terms of no sort of obligation involved. Yeah. A lot of co-founders can split apart because they have very different ambitions, but it sounds just quite amicable and Charlie going, actually, I no longer want to be executive. I just, for people listening, it's quite a hard thing to navigate. Well, I think you always have two relationships, don't you, with people, business and personal. And so your personal ambitions may you know become diverse. And, and business ones too and I think they come at different times but you know, we've always had a very good relationship with Charlie's in the US now so I see a lot less of him sadly but it was never a problematic breakup or something like that but I also think that long term relationships are really important that comes back to networking as well I think sometimes people are too transient in them but some of the relationships and networks that you build in your 20s I think are kind of coming into fruition in my 40s you have conversations where perhaps you haven't spoken to someone in five years and it's still of relevance and I think that having that and maintaining those over a very long period, people are often too short-termist about. When did you start Fresh Moments? What year was that? In 2000. So it's 20 years old, that business now. Oh, my word. Yeah. <laughs> and then you stepped away in... 2016. Wow. Yeah. OK, so good 16 years or something. Yeah, 16 years. Although I'd been part-time in the business from when my eldest was born. Right. So in about 2009... So I'd come in and out of the business over periods of maternity leave and part-time work. You also founded something else. What happened with Decidedly? So Decidedly was actually part of Fresh Minds and it kind of split into two businesses because we had a model where on one hand we would do research projects for companies directly and take ownership of those. And on second hand, we'd supply resource, so supply talent. So it became a recruitment business and a research business. And ultimately, we um, split the two. Talk me through succession. So Charlie left to pursue something else. You were on maternity leave, so you had little choice. How did you go about doing the succession? That's obviously another challenge that a lot of founders wrestle with. How was that for you? I mean, incredibly fortunate to have a team, in particular Adam and James, who took over the business, so joined us early on, and are now act as MD of the business and they've just done a brilliant job and it actually most of the last decade's success is, is attributed to them not us and was it clear that they were like when you were still running it was it clear that they were the next generation coming through yeah i think so very much so so it was actually quite an organic evolution well i say that now looking back they were not the first mds we'd appointed actually oh, right, so yeah. <laughs> so we'd had others in the business before that that hadn't worked but appointing adam and jc really did so Maybe, yeah, looking back, now I think, oh, yeah, it was a bit seamless. But actually, no, it wasn't completely seamless. I think it's also really hard as a founder to put in, you know, managing an MD is not straightforward because, you know, if they're the right MD, they have their own opinion, absolutely, as the direction and strategy of the business and how that should be executed. Mm. At the same time, if that is divergent from your view, how much of a gap do you allow and do you want to have? You know, and I think it's also very hard to get the balance then right as to you, how much direction and management do you provide initially and then later. And I think people also underestimate the step that it is from being an MD with shareholders who are remote versus 
you know, where there's kind of cover in the business as well. I think it's quite a lonely role. It can be a very lonely role being kind of CEO and MD because you're ultimately your responsibility is to take the business in a direction. But actually, everybody has slightly different competing priorities to you, whether that's your shareholders or your team. And especially if you're kind of a major shareholder yourself, things are slightly divergent of interest. So it can be quite a different set of responsibilities. I think people making this step up for the first time often underestimate it and it's not till they're in role they kind of go oh see what you meant because actually people forget I think the pressure of the revenue line and that real focus on I've got to make another sale I've got to keep the revenue coming in I've got to manage the cost against that revenue and when that is your sole responsibility suddenly it's a bit of a change I think. if you look back do you think to some extent the first iterations of your successor CEOs were too close to them yeah do you think you and Charlie learning about that relationship and how much airtime to give them and where that threshold was? I'm sure it was some of each. It may have been partly wrong person, but also partly wrong management on our behalf as well. So hard to know till it gets settled in the right place. It's also quite tempting, I think, to pick people who come from a more operational or finance background. We underestimated at the time the kind of natural connection to customer and market that we had, having built it and having sold to customers. Yeah. That actually, I think, MDs... CEOs have to have a real sense of where the market is and what customers want and why they want it. And you have to have a kind of sense of where you think that's going to go in the future. You might not be right, but you have to have an opinion. And I think actually that's quite hard to teach. And the success that came through in the later MDs with Adam and James was because they had that very close customer connection. Were there any sort of big dark places in the journey along with fresh minds always <laughs> i don't think anybody who says they've built a business without any dark days like, has to be lying because there are always black days i think over the course of that period all kinds of things happened to the business um we were robbed people were broken into on a number of occasions and computers stolen which at the time before pre-cloud was just much worse we had a flood that took out the server room. There was a fire that meant there was no access to the buildings. We've been sued by a sort of errant client a contract we never wish we'd got into. Oh, wow. Just all kinds of things happen along the way. Not to mention the typical ups and downs that individuals or teams have. And once you get to a certain scale, if every employee, you know, every team member has one personal difficult person issue once a year, at some point as an employer, you're dealing with those on a kind of weekly or bi-weekly basis. So... Yeah, there's plenty going on. Plenty of dark spots. And so if you take your kind of engineering mindset, what were your biggest lessons or development points, do you think, out of your Fresh Minds experiences that you've then taken forward? I think one of the critical abilities, I think, is to almost have a radar that can spin across multiple dimensions and a kind of sense of where the risk at any one point lies. I think you become quite good at spotting problems from different angles and kind of connecting the dots and I think one of your capabilities has to be able to know where you need to dig deeper on something and where you can feel comfort around that whether that is in risk or in compliance in brand in marketing in people Mm. you know on a legal contract you've got to develop a sense of this feels right this doesn't feel right and I either need to drill and put more resource in here or I can let it burn. And a lot of the skill is about, you know, there's always just fires everywhere. So choosing what you're not going to work on is the hardest piece, really. I think one of my advisors, American advisors, sent me an article a while ago that was about things don't have to just be a yeah, they have to be a hell yeah. So it was kind of a bit American, but you know, the point is on a kind of scale of 0 to 10, 
the eight out of 10 ideas are the hardest ones to kill because they're good ideas. In fact, they're really good ideas. You just don't have the resource to execute them because especially in a startup or when you're resource constrained, you can only afford to act on the nines and tens. And so everything else just has to be put to zero. And I think, especially if you've got a person like me that likes ideas, likes new things, it's really hard to kill things off, especially those eights. You're now on to the second big chapter of your entrepreneurial career with Fluidly. And tell us all about Fluidly and what the concept was and why you started it and kind of the business model today. Yeah, so Fluidly was really born of my frustration that I had an awful lot of information about the financial past in running a business, but never any information about what I really cared about, which was, can I make payroll this month? How much is my VAT bill going to be and do I need money for it? Do I need to borrow money? Where's my cash going to be? Why aren't my customers paying me on time? And all those sort of really hassly, real-world problems that small businesses face day in, day out. And of course, it's fine if you're a big corporate, you can build yourself a fancy model in Excel with your treasury team or something. But if you're a normal small business, you don't necessarily have that visibility into the future, despite having all the data that you really need to make it up. So what Fluidly does is it plugs into accounting systems and takes the data, automatically builds a view of the financial future and then helps businesses manage their cash flow, whether that is getting more money in the bank by managing debtors or taking out a loan or giving you more control over costs by being able to see what is due and kind of when. But that's complicated though. <laughs> Having been a failed accountant myself, was like, cash flows. My heart used to flutter when that question came up on the exam. So quite pioneering tech yep and we've got a couple of patents filed in fact on the sort of methods that take the data and ingest the data from a counter system and then use that to automatically build a view of the future i definitely underestimated the complexity of the domain i think the combination of accounting data on top of trying to get prediction software that gives you a view of that future and to do that in an automated way which basically involves machine learning on that was a lot harder than... Because I do think you need a certain amount of naivety to do something that hasn't been done before, because otherwise you would probably just be put off. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But And I think just huge amounts of learnings along the way in doing that. We probably could have started with a simpler product. But our focus is on trying to help small businesses with their money. And it was really having so many sleepless nights about that with fresh minds. Yeah. And particularly in recruitment businesses, you know, we had an interim business and a permanent business, so... Obviously, you pay out your interim contractors on seven days or 30 days, mm. and your big client might pay you on 30 or 60. Yeah. So you just constantly have this kind of cash flow problem. Mm. And so over the years, we had explored lots of different types of financing, whether that's invoice financing, overdraft, just trying to make sure our margins were sufficient and our debtor management was sufficient that we could trade off the cash that we had. It was always something that was under close control and we had a lot of experience over. And so it was sort of a natural problem that I wanted to solve but it also kept me up a lot at night and I wanted to stop that. Did you raise money from friends and family to start with and then how did you get to revenue and what was the early years like? So initially I was actually toying with a few different ideas at the time and I had three that I was again pursuing in parallel so one was fluidly, one was business around elder care and one was in rotoring software for workforces which I think was a good idea actually. Yeah. Maybe I'll do that next time. Next time. Oh, but, uh, so but I'd pursued quite a few and then I eventually dropped a email to 
VC who I had met many years before and said, hey, have you got half an hour for a coffee? I'd like to run an idea past you. And he said, yeah, sure, come and have a chat. And have you got any slides for your idea? So I said, no, I haven't got anything yet, but I'll, I'll make you some slides for when we meet. So I, I kind of rocked up with my very informal chat and my really, frankly, terrible PowerPoint sketch of an idea. And we still chatted 45 minutes. And he said, look, I'll fund it. You know, he offered me quarter million seed funding kind of on the spot. So I figured out, hang on, if he's just going to offer me the money, I must be able to raise this <laughs> for other people. Yeah. So I actually ended up doing a kind of angel round and raised the money from private investors at a better valuation and used that to get going. And how much runway did that give you? That probably would have given us about 12 months, but we subsequently raised a seed round from Octopus Ventures, probably about nine months, eight months, nine months later, and then a Series A from Nike Partners in the US the year after that. Wow, okay. So good thing that a cash flow business sounds like it was in charge of its cash flow. Yeah. So when did you first start deriving revenue? How long did that take? So we launched at the back end of 2017. So I guess the first year was a bit in beta. Uh, I was actually still working at Fresh Minds, winding down my involvement over that in the first time. So I didn't really go full time in the business actually, probably till actually till after the octopus round. So in 2017, that's kind of when I sort of put my full-time attention on it and we made some small revenues from the start but very modest uh, as we were sort of testing that and our go-to-market is predominantly we sell to accounting firms yeah so we work with around about 550 500 600 accounting firms in the uk today including most of the top 10 and we work with them to put our software with their clients and through that we reach a network of around about 30,000 small businesses today. Wow, so the accountancy firms like Channel Partners yes. and the SME is the client or is the accounting firm the client to you in terms of payment? It's actually quite complicated but we're mainly B2B in terms of the accounting firm and then there's a sort of an upgrade path B2B2B. B2B. So they get a base version as part of their accounting partners membership yeah, okay. and then they can upgrade to more powerful features. So this one, unlike Fresh Minds, this one had a sort of clearer vision of what it wanted to be. Yeah, I mean, I think the vision for it in terms of the product set, the feature set and how we were going to make money has all been pretty much there from the start. This time it wasn't always a PowerPoint, but more a series of kind of diagrams that I drew in my kitchen in 2017. I think the harder part for us has been in the go-to-market. So reaching small businesses at scale is notoriously difficult. The cost of acquisition is very high. And that's why SME is a market. It's a very challenging market to deal in. It's not like the consumer market where you can advertise or reach them at scale easily. And it's also not a very homogenous group. So although people like to think of small businesses all kind of lumped in together, they're just not. They're very different. And so trying to get that, it's been challenging. Slow decision making, different decision points within the SME. Everyone's running different business models, different systems. Pretty complicated. Yeah. And I think we also, so the go to market has been, we had to find the right way to do that and then also we have a kind of combined SaaS revenue from the software but we also make money as an intermediary of introducing small businesses to financial services in particular lending so our focus at the moment is really how do we help small businesses access the funding they need from our marketplace panel of lenders so we work with around about 40 different lenders um, everyone from the kind of large balance sheet institutional banks through to kind of old finance players like Funding Circle or IWACA and we match businesses based upon the financial profile that we can see today and upon their future financial profile that we can predict with the lending that they need. Oh, interesting. That's amazing. 
it's a huge network effect and it's actually something that when you consider that even um, mortgages which would be more of a homogenous product is still a sector that hasn't really got anywhere near that it's a hell of an achievement well i think we're still working on it i would say i mean i think the challenge is like for like mortgages a lot of the providers of lending in the SME market to do underwrite is still quite a manual process in many areas. And so automating that, it's got somewhere to go still. Building the teams who you've built quite a big team already in sort of three or four years and definitely now experienced having done that successfully at Fresh Minds. What are your big thoughts around company culture when building Fluidly? I think we were quite clear from the start about what our values were. And I think we early to articulate those as terms of what's important to us from a cultural perspective which is sort of no drama no egos you know we're in a complex domain we don't need to make it even more complicated so let's just be straightforward that we care for each other for customers for team you know we're focused on finding the right solution which is getting this balance point between gold plating something too much and being too easy and just being together we were quite clear about what are the things that are important to us as a business and the culture we want to create. And then I think when it comes to recruiting, you're always looking for knowledge and skills and behaviours. You know, your assessment process is normally on those three things. And so you're saying, you know, does this person have the skills and knowledge that I need them to deliver the role? They're going to behave in that way and are they going to be additive to our culture, uh, which is largely about values alignment, I think. And do you find recruiting... It's quite a talent war at the moment. Is vision and company culture, do you think, a key driver in helping on recruitment? Or have you navigated that? I think there's different parts out there when you think about recruitment. You've got attraction. You know, how do you make the business a magnet for talent that people actually come to you? And I think that is really important. But then there's also screening and how good are you at actually understanding the candidates you've got in front of you are they the right suitability for the business as well? And you've got to get both parts of that right. Mm. And so a lot of that comes down to, on the attraction part, it's about being a good place to work, having a good team, the right culture, values, and then mix of people in the first place. And on recruiting itself, not everybody is good at it, I don't think. And so you've got to be able to identify within your organisation who are you going to trust yeah. on the recruitment and what kind of questions are they going to ask and are they going to run that process fairly and clearly and it's not to be done in a kind of haphazard way. So what's the next few chapters at Fluidly? What do they look like? Are there any big challenges ahead or is it the high quality grind phase just repeat, repeat, repeat? I mean, I think for us it is working on more and more scale in our lending business so we're not lenders ourselves we're a broker but how do we do more and more volume and how do we keep identifying businesses that are suitable for finance and to kind of replicate that on an ongoing basis so the work there is really with the lenders and understanding their underwriting strategies that's the biggest piece to unpick there yeah it's supposed to understand yes there's an eligibility criteria what is the scorecard that each lender is using to decisioning but also to identify which business is likely to need finance and when so which business is going to need financing because we can see in their financial future from the forecast that they're going to cover working capital crisis or perhaps they should be refinancing that loan they took out two years ago or perhaps they have assets on their balance sheet that would be better financed through equipment finance whatever that might be mm. but to uh, use the data that we have and the financial fingerprint almost that we hold in the business to match them to the right product. <laughs> I used to remember 
about two or three years ago, every time I saw you in action, you would, I think, want to say jumping on a plane to like China with 20 of the most powerful women in fintech. And I may have heard you talk about biases, which is really interesting. So I'd love to hear how you've navigated that whole thing. I've been in a very fortunate position, really, always. I've had an advantage of privilege that I'm very mindful of. And although maybe a different gender that I notice much more in fintech than I have sort of prior to that, I don't think it's been a huge disadvantage to me at all. In fact, of anything, sometimes the opposite. I think I was picked out sometimes more than Charlie because female entrepreneurs were rarer. And I think there's often been an advantage rather than disadvantage. But it makes me mindful that talent is very evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. And how do you make sure that we seek out the right, most talented people for the business who may not have had the prior opportunities when we're recruiting or finding people for the team and being really mindful of that? I do think it's quite a weird experience when you're pitching for finance in particular. I've definitely been in rooms where you sort of feel like imbalance at times. And I think that's, and I hope that's changing. But I think part of it, and I'm not sure the kind of the apprentice ever did anybody any favours, kind of setting up that at the time or Dragon's Den. It sort of set up a kind of view of entrepreneurship or leadership that was kind of brash and aggressive and I think it kind of leadership is about having charisma and these great storytelling ability or spellbinding a room. I don't know. I think often you get this version of an entrepreneur that is actually very different to the many people that I see running businesses very successfully that are very different to that. And so I think it's more a question of what does leadership look like? What are people's expectations of leadership? I think that's evolved hugely as well. You look at Giuliani and that was real focus on this is what leadership looks like. It is quite, you know, male. But actually, I think there's been increasing focus on things that are perceived as being more female around empathy or um, relationship building, things that actually are attributes I think all leaders need. I don't think they're particularly ever associated with one gender or the other, but people perceive them that way. I'm very conscious that you've juggled being a mum and founding two very successful businesses. The phrase work-life balance, is it something you uh, think about or does work and home meld into one? Yeah, I think it's always been a bit of a blend and I've always seen it that way, even before 2020, when that sort of blend was forced (laughs) into the same space. But I worked part-time for many years between the birth of my first until my youngest was one and so then I had periods of maternity leave and I'd perhaps only work three or four days a week and I returned to full-time work when my youngest is now a bit older so it's always been a bit of a blend I think people have a certain tendency particularly when they're young think of things in a rush it's like a race you have to make partner by 30 or things have to be done in a certain time frame or by a certain stage and I don't think that's really very true in life and I think people that take time out of the workplace to care for whether that's children or other caring responsibilities I think you get a bit of sense of perspective that you know life is long and careers are long and you don't have to be in a rush to get somewhere by 25 it's perfectly acceptable to kind of have a blend over a longer period what would be your key advice to a founder exploring bringing institutional investors on for the first time I think especially at early stage your investors going to be with you a long time hopefully Mm. if you're successful so most important thing is you find an investor that you feel aligned with culturally and in terms of the strategy for the business and I think that that has to be not just individual investor level but at firm level too because over the time frame that you could be talking their investor team may also change so I think finding the right investor 
is just really important. And you've got to be aware about where they are in their investment cycle, what their expectations are and what they're looking for in terms of return. Any advice for the first year, which is often the make or break 12 months? I think customers, you've really got to understand and spend time with, I would say both your customers, but also your rejectors. So for the people that like the product, why did they buy? Because of course the first product has all kinds of flaws in it. There's always bits that you hate and they don't work as well as you'd like, that you really think, oh, I really had more resource I'd fix. But what is it that your product is solving a pain point that's sufficiently painful to them they were willing to take on your product and use it even though it's not optimum there yet and I really understand that I think and particularly also for then the rejectors why are they going to somebody else why are they not taking it up what you're fighting against most of all is kind of apathy I think that's your biggest so why is there not enough return in it for them and that constant sense of let's just make it better and every day and that real sense that I think things accumulate over time, like the compounding effects are really important, whether yeah. that is in foreign kind of relationships or in networks, but even more so, just as much so in businesses and the kind of processes, whether that's your process or your brand, you get these compounding effects over time. So if you can make things just better on an ongoing basis, it doesn't look much better day in, day out, but over a year, they get an awful lot better. What's the thing you struggle with most, do you think? Oh... Like things that I find boring <laughs> that I have to do. Like housekeeping type things. Yeah. Hygiene factors. I think the hardest things have always been product roadmap. And where do you make the trade-offs? And do you feel comfortable that this is better than that one? It's often not clear. And obviously a big year in the economy for all businesses, not just SMEs and particularly around cash flows. And so has COVID been, I don't want to say beneficial, it's not really... Is it the perfect storm in a good way or in a bad way just because too much change for you too early on or has it accelerated product adoption? I think yes and no. So the good things for us is it's brought a real focus on cash. And I think people have recognised that it's not just about profitability, but actually cash is king. And never more so in a year when you've really got to be mindful of your cash flow. So as a tool in terms of adoption and in terms of usage, we've seen a big increase in that the 2020. The downside for us is that inevitably with the kind of turbulent market, you also get a lot more churn in the smaller segments. And so we've seen a much larger churn than we would have liked, particularly in the kind of months between March and June of this year mm. in our smallest customer group. A few quick fire questions, if that's okay. So I wonder if you had a favourite turn to book. I'm not sure I do. A favourite turn to book. No, but I can see what I'm reading at the moment, which is Anne Bowden's book on banking on it, about her story of Starlingburg. Yeah, yeah, that's an incredible story. Who's been the most inspirational person to you on your journey or a mentor that you've particularly turned to? I think I probably haven't had any one person that I've always turned to, but I think there's definitely people that I've had the fortune to come across in my career that I found they were brilliant. Like in particular, Dame Helen Alexander, who used to chair the Said Business School Education, a sort of advisory forum that I was on for a while. And just seeing the deftness of touch that she had when chairing a meeting, that ability to bring everyone's opinions in and also shut down extraneous conversations, sometimes amongst people with high ego. I've never seen anybody do it quite like that. You, when you see something like that, you take that and think, oh my goodness, I could learn so much from just observing that behaviour. 
equally I learn from my team every day I learn from customers and learn I hope from bad experiences and decisions that I've made that I'll try not to make again and what do you think the most important qualities of a, for a founder entrepreneur would be tenacity resilience asking questions I think and that curiosity you're looking for things that support your view but also looking for things that you can add to it and being really mindful of people who have a very different opinion on why because you've got to keep testing your ideas and not be too precious about them but be willing to throw them out and start again caroline thank you you've been a superstar i hope that wasn't too painful <laughs> thank you really really enjoyed it so Caroline's the kind of person you sit at a dinner party with, talk to her all night, she'd tell you that she'd work for a company called Fluidly, but she'd never tell you that she founded it or that she's an entrepreneur. She just would never call herself an entrepreneur. But she's a true entrepreneur. She's never had a job. She always takes risky options. She admits naivety when others would decline the opportunity, but she just doesn't see herself that way. But she does recognise that talent is dispersed equally. Opportunity, however, isn't. And she takes and seizes the opportunity and this must come from her family roots. She's got an engineering mind, breaks stuff down, rebuilds it, recodes it, and she's got a resilient mind, so she makes sure it works, she gets it there in the end. But she's empathetic, generous, thoughtful, and determined, and this ensures people will follow her and do follow her. She's a true leader. I can't wait to see how Fluidly develops into a world-class business in the years to come. If you'd like to listen to more inspiring stories, you can search Tenzing or The Ascent on any of your usual podcast platforms. We'd also love for you to rate and review this episode and please don't forget to subscribe so you'll be the first with access to your future ones. You can find out more on tenzing.pe, on Twitter, LinkedIn or on Instagram. I'd love talking to you. Bye for now.